Oh, a great day for amazing stories on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Morin and here's what you might have missed. Well, the train departed and I found myself lying on the on the ground, so in between the railway tracks and the platform and there's a slight curve and I, I just um, rolled myself into that curve. Uh, I remember thinking, I can't feel my right side. I looked to the right um, at my arm and I realised that it was gone. They were able to remove two of his teeth and take a DNA sample from them. Even though the body had been boiled, they were able to remove the DNA. The RDH house, somebody once asked me, would I would I give it to him for a night? I thought they were out of their minds when they asked me that. <laughs> and I, I, and my, my response wouldn't even be printed. <laughs> and we'll start with a story that is almost unbelievable. It involves immense resilience and determination. And i got to warn you, it's not for the faint of heart. Sarah Delagarde was Ryan Tuberty's guest in the morning. So hold on to your hats for her tale, which has to begin at the summit of Kilimanjaro. Strangely, I'm going to just briefly, we, we've got a tube station to go to together here this morning. But before we do that, I want you to tell me about Kilimanjaro. Why did you go to the top? Uh, what, what, was, what was the drive? Um, I think, well, actually, my husband and I, we were planning on, on climbing Kilimanjaro about 10 years ago. Yeah. And uh, and it never worked out because I had my first child and then I had my second child. Then, you know, we were still supposed to do this. Um, and then the pandemic happened. And then finally, um, last year, it worked out. And we were so excited that we, you know, could escape England to go to Tanzania and um, and do this challenge. What a great post-COVID trip. Yes, perfect. it was amazing. Uh, tell me about, uh, just at the top when you got there, because obviously it's, it's a huge resilience required to, to ascend to the peak. Uh, how was it for you? It was amazing. I mean, it was very hard to get up at midnight and do seven hours of walking in, you know, minus 20 degrees Celsius. Imagine lots of wind and my husband and I just shuffling up there. Um, but all the pain and all of the you know, energy that we spent climbing up there, I mean, it was worth it. The moment that we you know, ascended, we got to the top and sunrise um, happened. And so we were really, really happy. Okay, quite stunning. Now, enough of that, yeah, because as joyful and amazing as it sounds, we have to go somewhere else entirely. And I suppose before we get to the tube station, give us an idea of what you're doing for a living. I mean, you've mentioned that you're married with kids and so forth, but uh, job-wise? Yep, so I'm I'm married with two kids, but before the accident, I had a full-time job um, in London, in the city, and I work in communications. Um, and uh, yeah, I look after change and crisis communication, so that that's my job. Okay. 20th of September, just gone by. I mean, this isn't a story that happened 10 years ago or two year, even two years ago. 20th of September, it was a Friday night, around 9pm. Um, where were you? What were you doing? And uh, maybe set the scene for us a little bit. I was working late on that Friday and um, and it was raining outside. Uh, I was keen to get home really fast. Um, we were supposed to pack our, our bags to go to Germany for my dad's 70th birthday. He lives there, so we were meant to travel. Mm-hmm. And um, and I couldn't get a cab home. And so I decided to take the tube instead. And um, and I remember sitting in, the, in, in, in my seat in the tube carriage and I was really tired. And uh, I thought, oh, I'm just going to rest my eyes two minutes. And then I woke up um, at the end of the line and I panicked. 
because you'd overslept, uh, as it were, and overreached in terms of the stops. And that, that can happen a lot. So th- what happened with the panic? What did you do with that? So I woke up and I thought, oh, no, I missed my stop. This is, this is not great. So I rushed out and realised where I was. Um, I was at the overground station, High Barnard. And, um, and then I thought, well, this is the end of the line. I need to get back onto the same tube. So it takes me back to um, into London. And so I ran. Um, but because it, it had rained so much, there were um, puddles on the station and I slipped. I lost my footing and I slipped, uh, tripped and fell into the closing door of the tube. So you did, the tube was there? Yes, it was about to depart. And so as I as I tripped and fell, the, the doors were closing and I remember hearing the beep beep sound of the of the closing door and I fell against it and um, I broke my nose and my, my two front teeth and instead of falling backwards, I slid sideways into the gap between the platform and the train. This is so gruesome, but it, you are discussing the you know they mind the gap that we always hear mind the gap yeah. you fell into yeah. the gap exactly and the train obviously no one was aware that this had happened meanwhile your nose is broken your teeth are shattered and the beeps are going what next well the train departed and I found myself lying on the on the ground so in between the railway tracks and the platform and there's a slight curve and I, I just um, rolled myself into that curve. Uh, I remember thinking, I can't feel my right side. I looked to the right um, at my arm and I realised that it was gone. Um, I didn't know about the foot. That was kind of a surprise afterwards. But um, at that point, it had taken my arm and my leg, my foot on the right side. Okay. I'm just trying to get th- get my head around the the physicality of that how did your foot and arm remain with the tube at the risk of <laughs> going into <laughs> shocking detail <laughs> but but had, had, had you, they weren't in the door or anything like that they, they just got caught up no, in no, the they, yeah they I, I was lying on the ground when the tube departed and so basically the the wheels flattened my 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 right arm and and my foot so it basically crushed it and then the the train left the station and i was still on you know on okay. the on the gravel there and um, strangely enough, adrenaline is a is an amazing drug that our our bodies produce, and I couldn't feel any pain. I I was aware that my you know my right side was numb, but I I didn't feel any pain. It's gruesome. And lying down beside the tracks, Sarah found her phone. I lost my phone as well in my fall, and um, and it was lying on the tracks. And um, because it's got a, a neon casing, it was glowing in the dark. And so I kind of um, crawled over the, the tracks to retrieve it because I thought I could call for help that way. Um, and the, the doctors afterwards, they told me that I was a complete miracle because I could have died 10 times that, that day. Um, first, you know, being run over by the tube. Then I crawled over the tracks. There was um, there's the electrical oh wiring there. I could have electrocuted myself, but oh I managed to to retrieve the phone and I tried to call for help, but the phone wouldn't recognize my face because I had broken my nose. It was full of blood. Then I tried to um, type in my, my, my code and it didn't recognize my, my fingerprints because the phone was wet. And so I had to, to, um, to resort to, to shouting for help. So um, I shouted that for, for quite some time. Um, but nobody heard me. Sarah, I don't. I. I <laughs> this all actually happened, didn't it? I mean, this this isn't some sort of prank. It's just so. No. It's beyond. <laughs> I assure you not. <laughs> no, no. You are, okay. Well, you, so you're you're there, and as I say, 
this happened in September, just just a few months ago. So it's so fresh yeah. in your mind. Nobody yeah. saw you, uh, even though nine o'clock isn't that late on a Friday night. Um, you were no. very much alone. Yes. So I, I, my, my guess is that there were people on the on, on, on the platforms. But, you know, these days everybody has um, earplugs in their, you know, listening to yes. music or podcasts. So my, 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 my cries were unanswered Can until I, yeah. 15 minutes later. And then the second train came into the station. Well, before we get to that, let me ask you. No, no, I just, I just want to want to miss a, 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 a beat here. What did you shout? So, yeah, I, I shouted, um, "Somebody, please help me! My name is Sarah, and I don't want to die." And what was going through your mind, a, as you were shouting, and b, in between the shouting? So, weirdly enough, I was very, very focused. I. My only thought was, I am not supposed to be lying here. Uh, I'm not supposed to be dying. I'm I'm meant to go home and be with my, my children and my husband. So in my mind's eye, I saw my children's faces and I was so determined. I thought, I just climbed Kilimanjaro. I will not die in a dirty ditch in, you know, High Barnet. <laughs> so so you, you did this idea of envisioning the most important human beings in your life acted as some class of almost like a, a ring being thrown into the sea to help somebody flailing in the waves. Yes, there was no way I wanted to, you know, die there. I really, really needed to go home. As you were lying there, um, one arm gone, one your uh, one foot gone with the tube that left, you heard that sound incoming of that, that whistling sound of a tube coming back into the station. Tell me about hearing that sound in between you looking for help and trying to deal with what was happening to you. Yeah, there was a moment I, I almost felt like, are you kidding me? You must be kidding me. There's another train coming in. It's like, no, no way. I'm just trying to get out of it. Um, so so I, had, I had a moment I felt that. And then it was actually terrifying because you could see the two lights coming closer and closer. And the sound of a, of a train is, is, yeah, that, that still haunts me. What did you do uh, when you saw it and heard it coming closer and closer? I tried to push myself against the wall as much as I could so that the train wouldn't get me again. And what happened? I continued, well, the train stopped next to me, uh, literally a few centimetres away from, from, from my, my remaining shoulder. And, uh, and I continued to shout as I thought that that's the only way somebody's going to hear me. So I continu- continued to shout, you know, somebody help me, please. My name is Sarah. And that train didn't have any physical impact on you, uh, to with or near you. Thank, thank goodness. Um, well, that's the part I don't remember because you know at that point, fifteen minutes into this injury, I I also you know sustained an injury on the on my thigh on the right side. Something um, cut me, and uh, and I was losing quite a lot of blood. So by that time, I was well. My memory's fuzzy as to whether that train hit me again or not. I, I can't really remember that bit. Well, I have to say, given that the first the first moment you've described um, and the idea of the second train possibly uh, hitting you, it's like you weren't definitely meant to be here. <laughs> like to survive yeah. this is something. And you you talk about your loss of blood. And I suppose that's the reason in some ways, Sarah, that I wanted to start with Kilimanjaro because it's fully connected with, yes. in some ways, the, your, your, your uh, reason for living today. Yes, because... It is a lot of willpower that got me to the top of Kilimanjaro, but it also was um, centering your energy. So 
when I climbed Kilimanjaro, I thought I'm going to save my energy for this long journey that I need to take until I get to the top. And so you slow down your heartbeat, um, you, you, you breathe in a certain way and you basically are on reserve um, for a long time. And so I, I mirrored that while I was lying on, on the ground on the tracks. And, uh, and really, it helped. It helped you know, not pumping too much blood into my limbs, which would have been lost, but it didn't. So Ryan asked Sarah about the rescue. Uh, let's go back to the tube station. Uh, there you are, uh, huddled into the side, trying to think, how am I going to get out of here? Um, eventually, you said it was 15 minutes. Um, you were shouting your name and that you didn't want to die. Uh, at last, you, somebody heard you. Yes, and that was... I mean, I, I don't know who 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 found me. Um, I just remembered somebody coming in, asking me my name and, you know, um, and then help was, was called. And I remember the, the emergency doctor holding my hand and asking me and telling me, don't worry, we've got so many people on the platform right now. Everybody's here to save you. So so hold on. And so I did. And they got you out of there. And they got me out of there. Yes. Tell, tell me a little um, bit about that operation. So they had me, they had to retrieve me from underneath the train. So the paramedics were there. Um, they put a plastic board underneath me. They asked me lots of questions: whether I could still move my head, whether I thought I had a spinal injury, um, and I could. I I don't really remember that part. But they, when I met the paramedics, they told me that I was still talking to them at that point, helping them. Um, and they, yeah, they retrieved me from underneath the train, put me on the stretcher, and then they gave me um, pain relief. And after that, I know I don't remember much. No. Um, I remember being in the in in the ambulance um, and and repeatedly telling the paramedics that they needed to contact my husband, and. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, we, we want to contact your husband. What's his telephone number? And I was like, I don't remember. <laughs> Nobody remembers any telephone numbers these days. Not so anymore. I, I uh, also, also, sorry, you had a little on your mind uh, <laughs> under <laughs> circumstances <laughs> to be remembering numbers. Very true. Um, <laughs> Very true. What did they, what, what, respectfully, I ask you if you could describe the extent of your injuries, ultimately. So, yeah, so um, I got an amputation above the elbow uh, for my arm and I um, sustained an amputation on the right side um, of my leg below the knee. Okay. Um, and in terms of coming to terms, if you will, of what happened, um, do you think this has sunk in yet, it being only in September? Uh, or do you think that something is going to land a moment of maybe more profound existential realization might come later um i don't know about that i know that what helped me was that i was conscious throughout all of all of the 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 accident and so for me it was easier to come to terms with it in the first two weeks it was quite tough um but but now i i i i think i've got a grip on it. So I think now I, I still have moments where I'm very um, sad and I grieve my, my my missing limbs, but I'm also the kind of person who says, okay, this happened, but I can't really dwell on it. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to you know make the best, make the most of it. That That's that's what I'm thinking now. In terms of limbs and uh, prosthetics, where are you at in, in your life? So I 
was fortunate enough that I got a place at a um, rehab clinic. And so I stayed there for six weeks and learned how to walk again. So I got my first prosthetic, was able to walk um, fairly, fairly quickly with it. And then just this week, I received a new prosthetic, which is a lot slimmer and looks actually quite cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my kids like it a lot. Okay. I'm like, oh, mommy, you're so cool with your robot leg. That, that's the leg sorted out. Now, the arm, I, I understand your uh, dream was to get a, a bionic arm. Um, you, you, you did try to fundraise successfully for about a quarter of a million pounds or thereabouts. Uh, that's a whopping amount of money. Um, and your husband and yourself set up a Go GoFundMe page. Uh, and not only have you achieved that, you've exceeded it. So you're not on here today looking for anything, which I think is 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 interesting in itself. But um, how did you how did you go about raising such a phenomenal amount of money in such a short amount of time? Honestly, I'm surprised by it my, myself. I I couldn't get my my head around it. Um, we started it, and at the beginning, I thought, well, the 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 the, the objective was to to get to two hundred and fifty thousand pounds because we spoke to a lot of the you know, prosthetic centers and spoke to other people who had lost their limbs and, and replaced them with a bionic arm. So we knew that that was the right amount of money. It, it's eye-wateringly expensive, the technology in itself, but also all of the rehab that you need afterwards. So physio um, and, 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 and yeah, all of the, the rehab facilities are all private. So, but I couldn't believe it. We reached that target in within two and a half weeks. It was absolutely phenomenal. And I was so humbled. Um, I cried a lot at that time, yeah. but not because I was in pain, but because I couldn't believe that people could be so generous. And you're going to uh, donate, I believe, the uh, the, uh, the excess funding to the hospital that did such a good job with you afterwards. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, tell me about how you feel about life and living since your recovery. I'm absolutely grateful that I'm still alive. I, I still, I think about the accident on a daily basis, but not in a bad way, but in the way that I am grateful. Every time I look at my children, I just, yeah, I'm very, very lucky that I'm alive and I'm conscious of that. An amazing story. Sarah Delagarde from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, a celebration of the Golden Globe Awards for the Banshees of Inishirin, and in particular, Best Actor winner Colin Farrell. Grania Humphreys of the Dublin Film Festival spoke to Claire. Grania, let's leave the film aside for just a moment and what it means for the industry. It was a wonderful acceptance speech from Colin Farrell, Isn't wasn't it? it? Doesn't it make you just so proud? He's a national treasure. I mean, all the emotions that must be rushing through you when you, you your name is called out and he goes up there. That's a performance. I mean, my heart, I heard it this morning. I didn't see it. I'm going to watch it tonight. And I just went, I am so proud to be Irish that he could go with such grace and mention everybody and stop the piano. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's power. And then I saw the picture and he looks dashing. He does. You know, it's fab. And, and, and we heard there uh, from him, from his own mouth, about that really special relationship between himself and Brendan Gleeson. Well, you can see it on screen, but obviously off screen as well. They're very close. They are very close. I was lucky enough, actually, my, my first year directing the, the Dublin Film Festival to open with In Bruges. And, um, you know, on opening night, you have the whole cast and crew there. So you had Martin McDonough and you had Brendan and you had Colin. And we gave an award 
to Brendan on that night and you could see Colin was the person who presented it and there is this chemistry between them. You know, there's a dynamic and, you know, I, I know it was mentioned in, 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 in lots of the kind of uh, post-awards kind of buzz, but, you know, it is surprising it took so long for them to kind of be re reunited because it looks like one of the great kind of like cinematic double acts mm -hmm. and apparently it's not going to be too long before they're working again the, the, with, with McDonough. Oh, really? This is what they're saying. He's not going to wait as long as he did uh, to put them back together on screen. But it's just, it's a, it's a, a subtlety, a nuance. And when I was lucky enough to host the Q&A after Banshees, and there is, they, they enjoy each other's company. They finish each other's sentences. They listen and kind of respond. There's, as I said, a wonderful intimacy. And for a film about male friendship and male friendship when it's taken away, you know, they have this bond that, that you can genuinely see, as I said, in person and very definitely on screen. And from the moment that film was was first seen by audiences, there was a bit of a frisson about awards bubbling away. Now, obviously, that's exploded because of what happened last night. But the expectation was always, wasn't it, that it would it would do well? I th I think so. I mean, you know, three board, billboards outside um, Missouri, which is the the McDonough's last film, did very well at the Oscars. You know, you already have a kind of energy around him. Um, I think from the standing ovation, you know, in Venice when it was the longest of, of a very very you know hotly competitive uh, film festival, people were talking about Octave, uh, Oscar buzz. And the other side to it is is that you know if you look down through the nominees, it really is beginning to look like a, a two horse race between Banshee and Fablemans, which is which is Spielberg's film about about his childhood. So you know, in in that sense, it's kind of exciting to see that the two kind of like you know favourites are, are one their separate categories at the Golden Globes, a kind of newly restored Golden Globes, and and probably now the race is on to see what what happens over the coming weeks. Because we have the categories separated out, of course, for the Golden Globes. You have yes. this included, and some people have questioned this. I heard people talking about this earlier this morning. Whether you know it should really be in the comedy set but it becomes much more competitive now when it's lumped in together with, with all of the movies for the best movie category at the Oscars. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, actually, if you look at the kind of films that were in its category, you know, Glass Onion was there, Triangle of Silent, of Sadness, and then, you know, the, the, the mad outsider film that is everything everywhere all, together, all, all at once. But, it, you know, it, to me, it's Fablemans and possibly Elvis and Tar, which is another film that, that's coming out very shortly into Irish cinemas, yeah. you know, which are the big kind of serious heavyweight contenders. And then you have the ones that have obviously worked uh, in terms of, of box office, which is, which is Top Gun, Maverick and, and Avatar. Um, and, and I'd see Banshee's very, very happily sitting in that kind of very significant, you know, uh, cinematic piece of work with fantastic performances. You described it as a dark comedy and I think that is kind of one of the elements about it. You know, people see it and do they laugh? Do they find the darkness attractive or quite quite sad? I mean, it's a film about, about loneliness and isolation uh, um, and in that sense you're kind of thinking, yeah, it's really tapping in to, to something that I think we, we're all very familiar with over the last two years. Yeah. So I, I put it fairly close. Grania Humphreys from Today with Claire Byrne. 
And another extraordinary story from the News at One about the skeleton of the so-called Irish giant Charles Byrne. A seven-foot, seven-inch skeleton, the remains of Charles Byrne, the so-called Irish giant, is to be removed from public display at the Hunterian Institute, the museum in London. Byrne, whose real name was Charles O'Brien, was a famous celebrity when he died in 1783. Originally from Mid-Ulster, his body was acquired in controversial circumstances by surgeon John Hunter. The skeleton has been on display for almost 250 years, but was recently the subject of a campaign to have it removed from public view. In a statement today, the Hunterian said the remains will not now be returned to public display when the museum opens in March following renovations, but will be available for continued medical research. We can talk now to Brendan Holland, who is a distant relative of Charles Byrne. A very good afternoon to you, Brendan. Thank you for taking our call today. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, um, you've been yeah, involved. You've been involved in this case for for quite a number of years. I say you're a distant relative and uh, have have a have a similar condition, a similar height uh, issue. So, what do you make of this decision now by the museum in London? Well, in fact, I have exactly the same condition as, as Charles O'Brien did. Um, I think the I think it's it's the right decision. Um, I, I've no, you know, uh, axe to grind with it. Um, it is being kept for medical research, and I should point out that when medical students are doing their training, they're showing this uh, the skeleton because um, the end of his lung bones are still cartilage, which meant he was still growing when he was alive. And it's a good illustration of the, uh, how can I put it, uh, you know, one of the traits of being a giant mm-hmm. and, and suffering from this condition. Um so, so it's it's medical evidence of, of uh, you know, w- what someone like myself who's mm-hmm. suffering from the condition would have had before I was treated in 1972. And you believe it, it, it was access to um, to his remains and, and uh, um, that researchers were able to, to treat you successfully? Uh, not so much that, um, Brian, no. It was more access to his skeleton, they were able to remove two of his teeth and do, take a DNA sample um, from them, um, even though the body had been boiled. Um, they were able to remove the DNA and when they compared it with mine, they were able to determine that A, we were related and B, we had exactly the same uh, AIP manifestation of, of the rogue gene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact the fact that it's been taken off public view is something you welcome, but it's it's con- making it a, con- available f- to researchers is also something you support. Indeed, uh, you know, we we can't do anything for dead people. We can help those who are alive and have this condition, and it's a condition which is particularly prevalent mm-hmm. in the area I live in, in East Tyrone, and also in South Derry. Mm. And what do we know about the life of, of Charles O'Brien, Brendan? It was it was a short life. I think he died when he was 22, isn't that right? He did, that's correct. He was born in 1761, was brought up in the Loop area of, uh, of Derry. Um, his mother was a housekeeper for a famous uh, Catholic well-to-do family, which is a rare commodity <laughs> in those days. Um, and uh, he was the daughter of the housekeeper, Mary O'Brien. Um, and we've been able to to trace descendants of the house owners, and uh, actually they're my relations as well. So I think right. that perhaps was um, may have been a 
some sort of contretemps in the house that uh, you know pr- ended up producing Charles. But mm. Charles had the gene, and, and he grew uh, oh, a phenomenal rate. I believe when he was nine, he was taller than his, his mother, yeah. and um, you know he he went on to to this phenomenal height of seven foot seven, um, and probably I would say you know had he not been um, so ill, he may have grown even taller. As we know, there was a gentleman in the United States who grew to almost nine foot tall. Um, and, and he had this, well, we described him as a celebrity, but he was, I mean, he was a, he was a ex- exceptional height and an exceptional um, physique for that time or indeed any time. Oh, without question, because the mm. average height of the ordinary male in 1782 was about five foot four or five. So he was, you know, mm. standing two foot plus taller than them and 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 would have been a you know it would have left most of the public gawping at him and he mm-hmm. made a lot of money by exhibiting himself but i i doubt if he felt comfortable doing that because <laughs> well he people won't with this yeah well he won't be exhibited anymore as a result of that decision today no. so that that's to be welcomed no. brendan holland from the news at one with brian dobson And on today with Claire Byrne, are you an owl or a lark? Are you the type of person who jumps straight out of bed when your alarm goes off? Or are you one of those people who likes to stay up really late into the night? And knowing whether you're a lark or an owl is vital to get the most out of the day. So we're going to learn more about this now from GP and mental health specialist Dr Harry Barry and from our Limerick studio by Dr Anne-Marie Craven from the Department of Psychology at the University of Limerick. Good morning to you both. Thank you for being here. Will we establish first what you are? Harry, are you an owl or a lark? I am on Unfortunately, a poor old owl. Are you? <laughs> I am. That's why I'm surprised yeah, to yeah, hear that. Yeah. Amory, what about you? Oh, I'm a natural lark, but I do have some help at home with that. Two small larks. <laughs> oh, you've got no choice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you'd be naturally inclined I to be. I would be, a thankfully. Lark. Yeah. And and look, given that we spend a fair portion of our lives, about a third of it, uh, Harry, asleep, we don't really recognise how important sleep is to our overall physical and mental health. We're starting to learn, but I think we're just beginning it. I I think, Claire, this has been a big journey for me. In the last 10 years, I have changed my... Uh, my view that exercise was the most important mental health thing to sleep being the most important health thing. So that's it's it's now my number one. Top of the list. Top of the list. So when I'm trying to help a person, I will always zone in firstly on, on their sleep because it's mm-hmm. so important. But you have to have the exercise, I think, but you in have order to, to get the, the good the sleep. Exercise is a critical part, is, but, it, you know, it, it's certainly really important. But I think this is a really important discussion because we all, we you know, we spend 16 hours of the day awake, but eight hours, one third of our lives is sleep. And I, I think what's ideally really, ideally is an ideal word, and I think this 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 conversation today is a really important one because we when we get to sixteen hours we start to feel a bit sleepy, you know, and we start to then feel kind of it's time to go to bed. The problem for us is that Mother Nature has designed this system where some of us will get sleepy early in the night. And we'll be heading off to bed at, at 10 o'clock and having our bath and going to bed. And then we'll get out in the morning like larks. That's why we call them. That's why we call you a lark. And you're full of beans and you're raring to go and the world is great. Then the, uh, the poor old on the other hand is busy wandering because he gets his, his, his chronotype um, um, brain circadian rhythms click in much later. 
and, and he feels sleepy much later in the night and he doesn't want to go to bed. He can't, in fact, if he goes to bed early, he won't sleep. So he goes to bed later and then he wants to sleep later in the morning. And of course, uh, he's going to be sluggish, therefore, and, and less active in the morning and less likely to be of any help in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yet, as the day goes on, he will, he will come into his own. Do you know what I mean? Yes, later in the day. So, so it's kind of understanding ourselves is really, really important. Okay. And Anne-Marie, can you talk to us about the, the differences then between the larks and the owls? Yeah, so I suppose the larks and the owls are very common shorthand to reflect differences in your natural inclination towards what time of day you'd like to go to bed or your tendency towards morningness or eveningness. There are other terms we use. So larks and owls are, are shorthand, of course. We have a whole bunch of people in the middle who like to live their life uh, according to society's schedule and it suits. But those larks, I suppose, uh, one rule of thumb has been if you fall asleep before 11 and wake before 8, you might be described as a lark. And if you fall asleep after 11 and wake up after 8, you could be described as an owl. Mm-hmm. There are the, the basic differences. Yeah, and of course it's a spectrum, all right. Uh, but but it's an it's a nice rule of thumb, and it, it's been quite common. Now, what's interesting? Some people have tried to complicate it further with early larks, larks, intermediate owls, all kinds of other categories. But I like larks and owls. People can relate to that and understand that as somebody who who goes to bed at, at a kind of an early hour, who likes an early night, and somebody who, who only comes into their own, I suppose, in the evening. And c- can you train yourself to be? one or the other? Well, when you talk about chronotype or this idea of larks and owls, you could try and train yourself and you you might have some degree of success, but you're kind of working against biology. Uh, So it seems that really people are biologically wired to be this way and we see shifts in this preference across the lifespan as well. There's some developmental changes across the lifespan in sleep. But but I wouldn't, even though there's some effort to change it, I, I actually wouldn't change it. I think if you can accommodate it first, that would be much better because it is a natural biological way that you're wired. Uh, so if you can accommodate it best you can, that would be preferred. Yeah, but you may have owls who, because of their work pattern, mm-hmm. have to get up very early. The same, you know, a lark who has to work late shifts at night. Is that when you run into problems? That is when you run into problems. So there is some research that has linked this kind of eveningness or owl chronotype to poorer health outcomes, things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, mood issues. And that's not that's not necessarily because people are wired to have these health issues. But when they're living a life that conflicts with their natural inclination to sleep, they're not going to get as good quality sleep. Uh, even if you think of somebody who's an owl who really comes into their own in the evening time, what opportunities are there for, for an owl to, I suppose, live that full life when everyone else is going to bed? You know they're going to take up habits that might involve going out for drinks, maybe eating at odd hours, rather than healthier habits when you can get to the gym in the middle of the day, for example. So I suppose the owls are a little unlucky because there are those associations with health outcomes, but it's not because they're an owl, it's because they're trying to live, um, I suppose, in conflict with their natural biology. So are there more larks than owls? About 40% of us are larks, about 30% of us are owls and the rest fall somewhere between, probably veering towards one or the other. And I think a really important point here is, and and I think Amory really put her finger on it there, that this is a genetic tendency. Do you know, we, we, this runs in families. Do you know what I mean? So we all are genetically designed, do you know what I mean, to, to be one way or the other. We, we call it our chronotype. And the real problem we have is, it's a, <clears throat> whether we like it or not, society favours the lark. 
you know, we, we think the lark is great. They're up in the morning, they're full of energy, they're full of beans, they're out there and they're at work and they're all, all game ball. But by, by six and even, they're gone. Do you know what I mean? Whereas the owl, unfortunately, and, and, and we always say the lark is great going to bed early, they're getting, doing all the right things. And then the poor owl comes along and the owl has been uh, criticised by everybody. They're lazy in the morning, they're not having any help in the morning. <clears throat> then at night they come into their own. They're wandering around the house when the lark is trying to sleep. Do you know what I mean? The other person is <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I think it really becomes uh, a problem when we look at modern life because modern life after the working, you know, after the economic revolution and modern life, everything is geared towards the lark. You know, you know, think of the early morning commutes, the delivering of the children, getting into work early, blah, blah, blah. It's all set up for the owl or, or for the lark. But unfortunately for the owl, they get out of bed late. Uh, or early for them, but late technically, they feel tired, they feel sleepy and they come in to work. And what's the first thing to go for? They go for coffee. Mm-hmm. And caffeine unfortunately sits in your denosine receptors in the brain and it's a half-life of eight hours. So if you keep taking coffee all day long because you're tired all day long, that makes it harder to sleep the following day. And I think there are really, really important um I think it's important that we look at the health side of this. Do you know what I mean? Jokes aside, we, we can look at relationships, but there's a very important health part of this and, and Amory has really put her finger on it here. That our sleep, our eight hours sleep is divided into five uh, 90 minutes um, approximately bursts of what we call non-REM sleep uh, or REM sleep, which is called dream sleep or slow sleep. And the first four hours is basically slow sleep or deep sleep. And this is vital for our physical health as well as, our, as, our, as everything else. So this is the time we clear toxic metabolites out of our brain to our lymphatic system. Our heart gets a rest, our blood pressure gets a rest. Natural killer cells wandering around the body are bumping off cancer cells like breast cancer cells and things like that. So if we're not getting enough uh, sleep, sleep at that time of the day, we're more at risk of these conditions. And in the second half, very interesting from the mental health point of view. This is where we detach our memories from our, our context, our emotions. So really, really important for mental health. So people who don't get enough of the late part of the, the night, the last four hours, are more likely to be anxious, depressed, uh, are more likely to drink more, uh, are, are more likely to, to be more stressed. So there are significant health differences between the island's lark. Dr. Harry Barry and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line in the afternoon, tales of detectorists and magnificent hordes and some of the big treasure finds in Ireland, including the Arda Chalice. Well, the big hit on TV and BBC and across the UK on Christmas Day was the programme Detectorists. Um, a lot of people call it The Detectorists. It's about uh, two lads, two curmudgeons who um, spend their lives uh, out metal detecting in the hope that they're going to find the Arda Chalice or the Derry and the Flan Chalice or whatever, but it's, uh, it was the biggest uh, viewership on Christmas Day. So an extremely popular um, pastime, to say the least, uh, metal detecting. I don't know when anyone does it here anymore. But anyway, talking about the Arda Chalice, we're contacted by a number of people, including Mary Curry. Mary is in Arda. Um, in uh, County Limerick. Mary, and she's written a book about about the area. Mary, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Joe. Hi. And tell us about the Arda Chalice. Well, it was found here 155 years ago on okay. the uh, 17th of September, 1868, and we commemorated the 150th anniversary in 2018. Okay. And um, at that time, we contacted the museum and wondered if uh, they might 
loan the chalice to us <laughs> uh, for our um, celebration, but uh, we got a very definite no. Um, and who, who found we, it? It obviously wasn't metal detectors in those days. Abso- no, no. Who no, found it? It was found by um, Jim Quinn, who was uh, the son of the lady who was tenant's farmer there. Okay. And uh, working with him was uh, Spalpeen Thonach, or an agricultural labourer, <clears throat> Paddy Flanagan, who oh. was 65 at the time, okay. where Jim was only a teenager, his young dad. And they were digging potatoes in a ring fort, of all things, yeah. uh, which in itself is quite unusual. Yeah, sure is. And uh, they just found that the ground was giving way and it was soft, so they kept digging deeper and deeper, and they came across a slab. And when they lifted the slab, there was a chalice. Wow. Five brooches and a little copper chalice inside it. A hoard, so, a hoard it was. A, a hoard, treasure trove. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what, what happened then, Mary? Who did they give it to? Well, at first they weren't sure what to make, but I think they showed it to the PP and uh, he said he'd contact Dr. Hanlon, who was the agent for the bishop. And uh, it took two weeks before it gets to Dr. Hanlon. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that time, local rumour has it that it was left on the windowsill of a house called Frank's House. And people could just see it because um, Mrs. Okay. Uh, Quinn was a very shy woman. She didn't want people calling around to the house. Uh, after two weeks, so, anyway, Dr. So she Hanlon... Left, so she left, this, she, yeah. she left it outside on the windowsill. That's right, yeah. For people to have a, to have a go. Come round and have that's a look. Right. That's right. But don't, yeah, but don't be knocking on me door. I'm busy. Which you probably was. <laughs> OK. Is that the last time it's been on public display in Arda? Yes. <laughs> OK. So where? how did it end up in the in the possession of the state, rightly so. Uh, but how well, did that happen? Cause the state what happened was the, the farm had been given to Helena Heffernan by her, when her, you know, uh, she was willed, yeah. if you like, and uh, she became a nun, so it automatically became the position of the nuns, and they didn't want to be acting as landlord collecting rent, so they gave it to the bishop. And he, again, wouldn't be coming out collecting rent, so he got Dr. Hanlon in Ratkeel to be his rent collector, if you like. Okay. So that's how it came about. So Dr. Hanlon sees it and thought, yeah, this is something special. So he took it into Limerick uh, to the bishop, and the bishop contacted his good friend, who was the Earl of Dunraven, um, basically an archaeologist, if you like. And he wrote the report, which is the gold standard, still the same report that's wow. referred to nowadays. Uh, and he did he, a very thorough report and he sent it up to Dublin then and it was cleaned by jewellers in Suffolk Street. But he realised the importance of it. Oh, he did straight away. Yes. The, the, he, knew, he knew straight away. What it's it was, invaluable, so. I presume, is it? Yes, it is, yeah. Um, I know that uh, we had to, at the time we, we considered making a copy and we got in touch with a jeweller in London who does this kind of thing and he said to cost around 35000 to make an exact copy. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at just that value, but it, its intrinsic value is, you know, you know, priceless, basically. Okay, and um, so you, so you—it's—it's it's now in the National Museum in Dublin. Correct. Yes. Okay, and okay. you for the what was it, 150th? Yes. You said, can we have it back? Not to put it back on the the, the windowsill, but to put it to display it properly. That's correct. Yes. In the home yes. of and the, where it was found, and what was and the reaction? The reaction was no. <laughs> Basically, they told us that it had been abroad um, for two years. Actually, I looked it up in 1978 to 80. It did a two-year tour of America with various other artefacts. And when it came back, they were very unhappy with the condition it was in. Mm. And they decided then that they weren't going to loan it out again. Um, wow. Even, basically, even to the place where it was where, where it originated? That's right, yeah. So I said then, well, look, okay, I can understand that because, you know, maybe we wouldn't have enough security, we wouldn't have the proper whatever system. Mm. Uh, 
so I said, how about you know the Hunt Museum or University of Limerick or wherever else in Limerick, the, the Art Museum would be ideal. Mm-hmm. And of course, we could have security in there because we could Sarsfield Barracks. I'm sure the army would give it a guard of honour. But they just didn't want to live at, at all, and not to anywhere. Well, that's Mary. Then Michael Ryan called Joe about the Derry Flan chalice. Tell us where, where you are and what's your connection with the Derry Flan chalice? Well, I, I, I bought the island there two years ago on the recommendation of Mr. Lee Maguire from Two Mile Boroughs. It was up ah, for public Liam, yeah. auction, Joe. That's my connection. OK. And how much you pay for the island? Oh, we bought it very cheap. It was guided at 280000 but it was a very bad time to have a public auction because the COVID was on at the time. OK. 110000 Joe. For your own island? For the own island. Charlie Hoy had an island, so I said I might as well buy oh, one as well. OK. So you bought Derry Naflan. Is it called Derry Naflan Island? Oh, Derrynaflan Island. It's, it's, most islands are surrounded by water. Yeah. Derrynaflan is surrounded by bog. Very okay. unusual. Now tell us about when was the Derrynaflan chalice found? And was it by detectors with, with uh, metal detectors or was it lads out accidentally digging? Who found it? Well, Michael Webb and he saw 1980. Okay, oh, that's fairly recently, yeah? Yes. A hundred years after our dad, yeah, or, or so. So how, do, how was it found? Um, Mr. Webb from Clonmel and his son went out with two metal detectors and they were only there 10 minutes and they found it. Wow. But you're talking about the Ardell Chalice. Um, the pride of place is in the National Museum. The first the first pride of place is the Down the Plan Chalice and the Ardell is only number two. Oh, that's important. It is, yeah. That's important. Okay. So do, would you like it back? For oh, I love it. A friend of mine has a boutique hotel in Cashel, Dermot Delaney, Bailey's Hotel. And we ha- we have a replica chalice. I bought it off an American lady last June on display in Dermot's hotel. Yeah. Because lots of the local people, Joe, never saw the original chalice okay. because it's up in Dublin. So they all come to Bailey's. But we'd love to have the original one in Bailey's. In, 19- in 1990, George was taken to Malahide Castle for a... And he used he so much ah, dinner, Dan. I remember that. Charlie, yes, Charlie Hoy. Oh, Charlie was able to do it, but unfortunately yeah. he's not able to do anything anymore. But now, and then, and then it was taken to Care and it was taken to Cork on display. So it has been on tour? It has been on tour. And then they gave 150,000 of a grant, which was a lot of money that time, to put it into the work of angels. It was an exhibition in London and Edinburgh. And it was gone on tour over in England as well and Scotland. And we paid, we paid for that to go into the We exhibition. did, 150000 You'd buy a big farm that time for that. You'd buy, you'd buy an island. Yeah, you would, Jeff. You we would could. buy an island. And where would you put it if you got it, if you, if you got it for a month or two? Mr Delaney says he'd put up a, a, a climate-controlled, a fully-sealed container in, in Bailey's and Cashel. Michael there, then Pat Wallace, former director of the National Museum of Ireland, talked to Joe. Were you ever, when you when you're in your esteemed uh, position, were you ever contacted by anyone saying, "Can we have was, to check"? Yeah. Um, what was your reaction? I was. Well, I'm I'm not speaking for the museum anymore now. I know that. I know that. So I can be a bit more dear than maybe I ordinarily yeah, yeah, might. Yeah. Um, no, I have been contacted in the past about it. And may I say, uh, in uh, praising Mary Curry there for her historical research, yeah. I too am a West Limerick man, very deeply committed to my county of origin. Okay. But there's no way that I would uh, sanction, if I were still there, the, the giving of the Arda Chalice. Somebody once asked me uh, from uh, on Pass 
song from Newcastle West Golf Club, mm. would I would I give it to them for a night? I thought they were out of their minds when they asked me that, <laughs> and, I, I, and my my response wouldn't even be printed. <laughs> but or, uh, but I just want to say, the other chalice, first okay. of all, I, I'll come to doing the plan later. Yeah, yeah. The other chalice is one of the greatest chalices surviving from the early Christian church. Eighth century, beautiful metalwork, mm-hmm. inspirational, and part of Europe's heritage. It's not even our... It's, it's, of course, it's made in Ireland. I had a minister once, by the way, not from Limerick, who claimed it could hardly be made by Limerick men. Well, it was, and it is a very sacred part of Limerick's heritage. But why would people want to bring it down to a small... I'm from a small village in yeah. County Limerick, next, next to our why would people want to bring it for their own uh, edification to a place like that and deny the public at large, the world at large, the continued presence of this most important treasure of the National Museum, to yield on this for the National Museum and to give it for any extended uh, span of time would be to compromise on the whole raison d'etre of the National Museum and that every object from every part of Ireland would go back uh, logically mm-hmm. to its, pla- its place of discovery. That can't be. We have a small nation, a small island country, island heritage, and we are we have decided as, as a people, even in the old British this was they set up all this uh, to have a national museum and mm. we have that that museum to show the best and to explain our incredible past from the early historic pre-Viking age um, Christian period so uh, um, well, what about the point Pat, that, it, that it has been let out before uh, the other chalice yeah. It has, yes, it was in the Treasures of Munster when I was a junior in the National Museum. It was taken to Cork Museum, a very fine regional museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a part of an international exhibition which was uh, under Brandon O'Reardon's time as director and I accompanied as curator uh, to Berlin. Had I been director, I, and I respect and revere Brandon's memory, mm-hmm. and he, uh, but I would not have let it out of the country at that time. And, and did, in my well, time, well, was it damaged, Matt? No, but was in and was in a fantastically secure place in Berlin, and I was there with it all the time. But it's still, in principle, I think it shouldn't have gone there. But it was decided above Brendan's head by the minister of the day, yeah. who, who uh, tried was trying to put out a good message about Ireland when we were looking very bad in international news terms. Um, could I just say? And what about Ma- Malahide Castle, Pat? Malahide Castle For was done behind my back. Uh, I was director just uh, at that time and was taken out for a one-night stand, literally, to Malahide Castle because Mrs Thatcher was visiting. Pat Wallace from The Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, Bordeaux or Ferrado, the case of mysterious wine. Eva Carrahy is a wine writer for the Irish Independent and she was talking to Claire in the morning. It's intriguing, um, this cheap Spanish wine mm. being passed off as fancy French wine. How was it all discovered? So, as is often the case, it's, it was the, de- you know, the, the devil was in the detail and it was a taxman that discovered it, an eagle-eyed taxman. 
who realise that, hang on, this isn't all adding up. Um, and that's often the case in, in these fraud cases where um, it is the, the, the kind of the, the detail, the numbers don't add up of, you know, what's what's coming in and what's going out and so on. So it was, uh, yeah, it was discovered in 2016. and uh, But it actually dates back to 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, the case was um, where there was a very poor harvest and um, the opportunity for sales were very were poor because the crop was was very low uh, as a result. Um, this was and in Bordeaux, um, a um, a winemaker was was looking at what his options were and looking at a, at a pretty at a des, you know a decimated year. And together, the allegation is this is this is still in the in the courts, so um, uh, the judge is yet to rule at the end of the month. But the allegation is that. He came up with a scheme with a negociant who would be a, a wine merchant um, who are very, they're very important kind of figures in the, the, the French um, wine industry of, you know, in, in terms of buying and selling wine and the trade of wine. So he, you know, the two of them together came up with this, this scheme to import some cheap Spanish wine that would cost, you know, they might sell it for a euro or two a bottle and they could then relabel it as very prestigious uh, Bordeaux uh, Appalachian. And, so and sell it at that price. Sell it at, higher, at, the, at the higher at, price. Yeah, at 20 euro a bottle. So. And do the wine experts not notice this? <laughs> well, look, we don't know the details in this particular case, but it's interesting. There's, there's a there's a parallel case going on in in uh, Spain at the minute, where there was a Catalan producer. Um, I was reading about that as well. And um, in in that situation, they, there was some forty million bottles that were that were uh, fraudulently labelled as uh, very um, high end, so Priorat and, and and other kind of high uh, prestige DOs from from that area of Catalan. Um, and in that case, they actually. Um, they had a kind of a, a three-tier scheme where they bottled some very high-quality bottles, and that's what they presented to the to the you know international wine competitions and got all the prizes and so on. There was then a kind of a second tier that they presented to the wine buyers, and then there was the stuff that they just labelled and sell, sent to Aldi and Lidl. Um, and uh, the, the the report again, this has has yet to go to, to to court. So these are these are still allegations. But the the report is that there were actually uh, complaints from customers in Lidl. Um, and and an Aldi where where they said this this wine is not is not what it's supposed to be. They had their wits so, about them. So so you know there could be in that case there could there, in in the, in the French case they, there might have been this kind of elaborate scheme. But also there's a lot of variations in wine. You know um, the value of wine and quality are not always the same thing. Sometimes you're paying for you know you're paying for Saint Emilion because it's a region that that generally gives excellent wine. So you're kind of you're hedging your bets. Um, but you'll accept if it doesn't taste exactly like the bottle that you had six months ago. Exactly. There's huge vintage variation. The wine uh, changes in the bottle, it matures in the bottle. So there's a lot of different variables, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can have a very good wine. For example, like you might have a winemaker in France might choose to, um, he might be based in in Rhone and some wines that he makes might be Cote de Rhone, which would sell under that appellation. But then he might decide, well, I'm going to do something different with this wine. I actually want to mix in a grape that I'm not allowed to use as a Cote de Rhone, but it's going to be a better wine, but I'm going to sell it as a Vin de France, which is an inferior classification, but it might actually be a, a nicer wine. wine. So he mightn't get as much money for his wine initially because it doesn't have the name, but then if he could build up a reputation. So, the, so what I'm saying is there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables. Aoife Carrahy from Today with Claire Byrne. And on today with Claire Byrne, invasive advertising, there's no escape. Adam McGuire was talking to Claire in the morning.
How many times are you listening to music on your smart speaker only for an advert to interrupt your sing-along or perhaps the murderer is about to be unveiled in your favourite streamed series only to have an unwelcome ad interrupt your whodunit? How big an issue is invasive advertising and is it the way of the future? Well, Adam Maguire, RTE business journalist, is here now. Good morning, Adam. This is a new one on me now, invasive (laughs) advertising. I was saying to you earlier, it does sound a little bit painful. (laughs) What what do we mean when we refer to this? I suppose it's different things to different people, but I suppose it boils down to whether an ad is getting in your way or not, whether it's invading your space. Uh, Of course, we're surrounded by ads all the time, you know, a billboard in the corner of your eyes as you're walking or driving down the road or an ad that's sitting at the side of the article you're reading online and they'd be known as passive adverts but when that online ad suddenly moves from the corner of the page to take over the entire page and block what you're trying to read that becomes an invasive or an intrusive ad same goes for for things like you mentioned you know with your smart speaker or with with videos when you you know it cuts in in the middle of a video and you just have to sit there and and suffer through it Uh, but invasive ads are also about the, the increasing number of ads that are popping up in places where we just wouldn't expect to see ads at all and again you just have to suffer through and simply put up with them when we didn't have to in the past. So give us an example of that, of this new form of pop-up. One area that's increasingly falling prey to this is, is the car. Uh, we, we might expect to see ads in the car for, you know, when we're driving outside uh, on the road or something like that or hear them in the radio while we're driving but we wouldn't expect the car itself to be presenting ads to us, at least we would not. until now. Uh, last year, Audi announced a partnership with a company called Fourscreen that would allow it to present adverts to its drivers through the infotainment system in the dashboard. Ford has a patent for pop-up ads in its cars and there's an American company called Telenav which produces sat-navs uh, and, and systems like that for a number of car manufacturers also offers the, the option of streaming ads to people while they're sitting in the car. that sounds so annoying but also potentially dangerous. Potentially, yeah but uh, uh, the Audi system for, for example the idea there is that the ads are built into the mapping system in the okay. in the dashboard so if someone is searching for something on a map and hopefully they'll be stationary while they're, they're doing that one of the options that's presented that might be paid for you know, or, or might get a, a more prominent position on the list because it's it's paid to be there and it's something that already happens with, with Google Maps. You see People that all the time. Familiar with it, yeah. yeah. So it's just the idea of bringing that to the car. Uh, the Telenav system, that's meant to display ads when the car is stationary rather than when people are driving but that could still be dis- distracting depending on the, the scenario. You, you know, you might still need your wits about it, even though you're not actually moving in the car. So we're not talking about an ad popping up on your car's information screen while you're driving not, not shouting uh, at you. Yeah, hopefully not, not at the moment. The Ford pattern though seems to be designed with that in mind but it's more for self-driving. It's more of a, of a future-proof patent. So, you know, if and when we have the technology of self-driving cars, I suppose, it's not about distracting the driver because you're just sitting there passively. It does so help to highlight the gap, though, between, you know, what's promised and what's what, what's actually going to happen. Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.